I read comics. Show number fifty-four. Newcastle Brown Ale. You can't beat that for dinner. So I realized when I started to put together this podcast that it is Comic-Con weekend and I'm not going, which means nobody's going to listen to this except for the people who aren't going to Comic-Con, which are probably five out of the people who actually listen to this show. So this is for all of you people who aren't going like I'm not going. And I'm not going because I don't have the time and I don't have the money And I didn't feel like putting myself through it this year, but maybe next year. It looks like it's actually going to be a good Comic-Con as far as the guest lineup goes. There are some people I actually wanted to see there. They actually have some women on the, the invited guest list, which is great to see because they've been very bad in that department. So it seems like they're finally trying to do something about it. And I'm a little sad because there are a lot of people going amongst the creators who I'd really like to see. And there's a podcasting panel, which I'm not going to be on, which I think is on uh, some weird time like Friday rather than the Sunday morning, which in my mind is when it traditionally is because it was at Friday morning, uh, sorry, Sunday morning in Comic-Con last year. And then it was Sunday morning at WonderCon this year. So I don't know. But it'll probably be good. So if you're going and you're listening to this anyway, uh, go support the podcasters because it's always a good thing to do. So that's what I'm not doing this weekend, going to Comic-Con. I also wanted to just tell a little story quickly before I got into the reviews because I mentioned it on my live journal with the cryptic phrase, I'm supposed to call Harlan Ellison tonight. And I did. And this is how it happened. I know somebody who knows him through Ellison fandom. And I told this person, Barney, hi Barney, that I had used one of Harlan's quotes for my picture in the Skeptics calendar, the one that goes, the two most common elements in the universe are hydrogen and stupidity, because I felt it really reflected me as a skeptic. So when I finally got the calendars, I told Barney and said, could you please tell Harlan about this, because maybe he'd like to know, and I'll send him a calendar if he wants to. And that was in February, and Barney forgot about it. And just a week ago, realized that he'd forgotten to do this, and he did, and Harlan wanted to say thanks, so he asked me to call him, so I did. And he was so nice to me. I was so nervous because he's Harlan. And if you listen to the show that I did about Boy and His Dog with my good friend Catherine last year, we talked a little bit about how he has this public persona of being a real uh, prick and a curmudgeon and really mean to people. And he is sometimes. But I had also met him at a book signing, and he was very nice to me. And he was just as nice when I spoke to him on the phone this time. And I told him a little bit about the calendar and me and things. And he said, Oh, well, do you want to interview me for your podcast? And I said, sure, that sounds like a great idea. I don't think he really understood at that point that this was a really a podcast about comics. Um, so I wrote him a letter to follow up stressing that, yes, I'd love to talk with you about comic books because he's written lots of comic books. In addition to having his own stories adapted into comic books in the dream corridor comics. So I am going to try to set that up sometime soon, and we'll have probably an hour's worth of me talking to Harlan and him telling stories and me probably just trying to get a word in edgewise. So you have that to look forward to. 
I have some good stuff and some not so good stuff to talk about this time, including some more independent things. So let us take a quick musical break while I finish my beer, and then I'll be back with the reviews. of the way that I didn't like so I can spend more time being positive. This is a collection, trade paperback, Wolverine, Enemy of the State, and this is part of the Marvel Knights line. This book was a gift to me from somebody, and I'm pretty sure it was from David Arroyo, but I can't be 100% sure. It might have been from Drew Hennessy. So to whoever gave it to me, thanks so much for giving it to me, and I'm really sorry I didn't like it. And I'll tell you why. This collects uh, Wolverine 20 to 25, written by Mark Miller, who I'm really not liking these days, as you might have guessed last time around, and illustrated by John Romita Jr. And the reason I don't like it is because the plot is something that Marvel has done about a bazillion times already, and I'm tired of it, and it's way too gory for my taste. Now, I understand that it's a Marvel Knights title, and frankly, when I sat down to read it, I didn't even notice that, because the Marvel Knights thing up at the top is really small, and I just didn't really realize they had this other imprint. Like, I knew about the Max imprint, which is supposed to be for adult themes, so I just looked it up on Wikipedia. It says, dealing with more mature themes than the regular imprint, it is intended more for teenagers than children. However, it does not deal with the adult themes touched on by the Max imprint. Um, so it has some ongoing stuff and some limited runs, and of course, I knew nothing of this. Here's what uh, Joe Casada has to say about it. Marvel Knights is the show gre- showcase for evergreen events, self-contained limited series that think outside the box, that challenge readers to rethink their favorite Marvel characters and reevaluate the legends that surround them. In other words, Marvel Knights will be a place for top talent to work without constraints and deliver the kind of product fans deserve. This book is not a good example of that. It did not challenge me to think outside the box. It did not make me rethink my favorite Marvel characters or reevaluate the legends that surround them. It did none of those things. Here's the plot. There's Wolverine, and he goes to Japan, and he gets killed by uh, the Hand and some other guys, And they brainwash him and bring him back to life, or actually, I guess, bring him back to life, and then they brainwash him in that order. And they send him out to start killing people and blowing stuff up. That's the plot. And then all the other superheroes have to try to stop him. 
Okay, so the setup maybe was original, but the idea of the good guys having to fight each other because one of them turns bad for some very complicated reason, that's not new. That doesn't force me to rethink anything. They were doing that in the earliest Superboy, and I mean, come on, I've been talking about that kind of stuff in the Legion of the Superhero stuff from the Silver Age. It's not a new idea, and it's just an excuse to have the good guys fight the good guys instead of the good guys fighting the bad guys. So we get to see how Wolverine stacks up against the Fantastic Four and against Daredevil and against Elektra and, you know, just pick one, and he's probably going to go up against them. And you know what's going to happen in the end. You know that nobody is really going to die. You know that in the end, Wolverine is going to be made back into good Wolverine because he's not going to stay evil forever. And you know that the bad guys are going to be defeated somehow. There's no suspense whatsoever. So that aside, you're just reading this comic to see the fight scenes and to see how the good guys are going to figure out how to defeat him and how clever he is using all his inside knowledge against the good guys. That's it. Um, I, I didn't find that that interesting, although I have to say the art is pretty good. John Romita Jr.'s style is not like his old man's. It's a lot more cartoony, um, sort of Bruce Timm-influenced, more animation-looking than anything else. But it, it looks good. I like the way the characters are drawn. The coloring is beautiful, I have to say. That's the best thing about this book, is looking at the coloring. Um, the colorist on this is uh, a guy named Paul Mounts, and man, he did a great job. I think it would have been a much worse book to read if he hadn't done the color. And there are just pages and pages. Everything has a black background, pretty much. Um, the pages are bordered in black rather than in white. And it just, there are, you know, pages where Wolverine's fighting the Human Torch, for example, and every panel just glows. It looks really cool. There are panels where um, he's underwater, and all you see is, like, this blue wash over everything that really gives you this feeling of being underwater. Um, there's a scene at the Fantastic Four headquarters at the Baxter building, and Reed is floating in his little think tank, and everything has this beautiful purple, kind of iridescent look to it. It's just gorgeous. I mean, I think this is um, some of the best coloring that I've seen in a comic book that's just a straight standard comic book and not, you know, like Alex Ross or something. So I really, really like the coloring in here. Um, the plot, you know, not so much. Um, the lettering is fine, although they use this technique where Wolverine um, has two voices in his head, the bad guys and himself, and when the bad guy's talking... It's supposed to have a green shade that comes up from the bottom of the, the text box. And when the background is green, too, it's really hard to see it. Um, so I had trouble sometimes figuring out which voice was in his head. It was the good voice or the bad voice. And it's kind of like Gollum in Lord of the Rings. And I was really struck by that as I went through the book. It becomes very much like, we wants it, we wants it. And it, it was hard for me to follow the thread of that. My other huge complaint about this book is that the plot's not finished. It collects issues 20 through 25, and at the end, it's right in the middle of everything. So you have to buy the next book to find out what happens. Fuck that. I'm not going to buy the next book to find out what happens. If it's collected in a trade, it should be a story. Don't make me buy the next book. So I just went on Wikipedia and read what happened, and hey, it turned out exactly the way I thought it was going to. So that annoyed me tremendously that I would have to buy the next book to find out what happens. Now... The thing that bothers me most of all about this book is the incredible amount of gore therein, that people die basically on every page. 
okay, it's supposed to be an imprint for older titles, but does that mean that you have to see Wolverine spearing people and ripping their guts out on every page? It's really awful. And as an example of why I almost didn't read this book, in the very first chapter, after Wolverine gets possessed, he is uh, in a military hospital, and the nurse who's taking care of him apparently is a woman that uh, flirted with him at one point, or met him, and um, liked him, and as she's tending to him, uh, he's unconscious, or she thinks he's unconscious, and she's carrying on this little monologue, and it's sort of funny, where she's saying, you know... Here, let me find it, and I'll read it to you. She says, Don't you remember me? I'm insulted. Three or four years back, the Scorpio mission? That number you gave me was fake, you jackass. I called you the next day, and you know what I got? The Fantastic Four's reception desk. Man, I can laugh about it now, but... And then she sees that he's awake, and she uh, starts talking to him some more. And he's thinking, his two, his good golem and bad golem voices are saying, you have to kill her, you have to kill everyone, and the good golem voice is saying, no, no, don't kill her. And she seems like a pretty cool character. She doesn't have a name that I can figure out. Um, and she looks like she's not white, which is also pretty cool, given the lack of people of color in comic books. So that was nice. So this whole scene goes on, and we get get to know her a little bit. We get to know who she is, and that she's still interested, and she is thinking that she'd give him another chance after he got better. And then you turn the page, and there is a full page panel of him gutting her, and you actually see the claws coming out through her back. It's horrible. It's just horrible. And at that point, when I saw that panel, I was shocked, and I kind of went... <gasps> like that, and I had to put it away, and I really couldn't read it for about two months. That's when I started reading this, because I was so upset by that, that this woman that we've come to know dies in this really horrible graphic manner, and that was just the beginning, and then on every single page, he's clawing people and ripping their guts out, and it's it's horrible, and as we go through the book, there's a lot more of that sort of stuff, where he, Wolverine, is doing terrorist things in New York and every time Nick Fury who's white in this which kind of throws me a little bit because I got used to the ultimates Nick Fury who's black and I actually like him a lot better as black guy um they're talking about oh he killed this many people and he blew up a car and this many people died and he he set fire to a church and this many people died and I was just thinking this is horrible the carnage is just awful I don't want to see that many people dying in a comic book and I I started thinking about this today, and I don't know whether it's because the comic books that I grew up reading were Silver Age comics where people didn't really die. They usually got beaten up, but they didn't die. Innocent bystanders were not killed, and in fact, they made a big deal out of that in things like Spider-Man, where he was really careful not to make, to make sure that people didn't get hurt. So when I see people get killed in a comic book, I take it very seriously. So that's me. That's a personal preference. But I do think, in general, there's far too much killing in this comic book. And I felt sorry for all of the innocent bystanders and all the policemen and everybody who gets gutted. And it brings up a bigger question. There's a thread through here where Nick Fury is talking about how they're trying to keep it under wraps, that, um, you know, it's Wolverine, that they don't know who's doing all this. And God only knows how they do that, because he's wearing his freaking old you know, yellow uniform, which everybody can see from a mile away, and his stupid hair. Um, And they keep saying over and over again, oh, he's not responsible, he's not responsible. Obviously, he's been brainwashed. It's not his fault that he's killing all these people. And I thought, how many people does he have to kill before it is his fault? 
the superheroes are very careful in trying to take him out because they don't want to kill him because it's not his fault because he's been brainwashed. A hundred? Two hundred? Five hundred? What if he kills a thousand people? What if he rips the guts out of a thousand people? Is that enough before we say, okay, it doesn't matter if he's possessed or not. We need to take him out and kill him for good and throw him into outer space or dissolve him or whatever it is we do with Wolverine to make him stop killing people. And that is not addressed in this comic, and I actually think it's a pretty important moral question that should be addressed. Maybe it's addressed in the next book. I wouldn't know. I didn't buy it, and I will never buy it. So if you've read the other book, please, I'd like to know if that ever comes up as a discussion or a plot point or something, because I actually think it's a way more important than figuring out, you know, who's smarter, Reed or Wolverine. The other thing about this comic that I realized, um, as I said, I had this realization when watching the X-Men movies that Wolverine has the stupidest hair in the world, is that Elektra has the stupidest costume in the world. It's really ridiculous. And to John Romita Jr.'s credit, we only see her in that costume in the first, I guess, issue. And after that, she's wearing either normal clothes or in one, she's got some workout clothes on and then she goes and kills a bunch of bad guy zombies while wearing her workout clothes. And I'm fine with that. But she has a really stupid fucking outfit. It's really, really bad. So um, that's my review of this particular book. I don't think I could really recommend it to anybody based on (laughs) what I've just said. But it is pretty to look at. Except for the blood. And the guts. And the brains. Next on the list is a book that I got a while ago on the recommendation of a listener, uh, a comment on the uh, picture I had posted back in December (laughs) for a gay romance called discreet young gentleman, which Logan actually read and reviewed. Um, And one of the comments down at the bottom was from a uh, blogger user who has the blogger name creepy lesbo. And she wrote, I'll say it again, yowie, see stuff like The Black Knight and Jacques and Gerard for historical period gay romance, both published by Blue, I think. So I bought The Black Knight. And I wasn't sure what to expect from this, so I knew it was going to be historical gay romance, because that's what she said it was going to be. And in fact, that's what it is. It's published by a company called Blue, and it's by uh, Kai Tsurugi. hope I'm saying that correctly. Tsurugi. And this is book one of three, I believe. Yeah, this is book one. So here, I'll read what it says. This is the description on the back cover. Zeke O'Brien may have his eyes on the title of Black Knight, the highest honor that can be bestowed upon a knight in the kingdom of Arran, but he's also after another prize, the young prince, Chris. Black Knight is a sweeping romantic epic about the relationship between a prince and his loyal guardsmen as they embark on a lifelong relationship fraught with danger, treachery, and, above all, love. That's a pretty good description of the plot right here. I will put up a picture of the cover because it's so manga and so stereotypical, I will say. So we have our hero, Zeke O'Brien, who has black hair and is quite manly looking. And he looks like he's sort of crouched down. Maybe he's on one knee and he's holding our um, other hero, Chris Christian, his name is, Prince Christian, who looks exactly like a girl. He has the biggest eyes I've ever seen and blonde hair, which falls very artfully across his face. And he has sort of a 
I don't know, a scared expression. And Zeke's holding him. He's cradling him in his arms. And Chris looks like he's got his arms wrapped around his neck, maybe just short of choking him to death and looking very dependent. So that's pretty much the story on the inside. And this was actually a fun read for me. I don't read too much historical stuff. And I had never read historical or period manga before. Now, it's a bit of a stretch to say it's historical because it's the history of nothing. It's supposed to be... Uh, England, Ireland. His name is Zeke O'Brien, but it's not really Ireland because um, it, it sure doesn't look like it and it doesn't make any sense in terms of what Ireland was like. These guys are dressed sort of, um, you know, post-Renaissance, maybe sort of uh, 18th century, perhaps. And I, I don't know. It's just a Japanese interpretation of what some English-speaking place might have been like at that time. So the problem that I have with this book, so generally I like this. I thought it was really good. Um, the plot kind of moved along. There was a lot of exciting stuff that happened. Everybody was in danger. There was some treachery. There were characters who you didn't know that were going to be bad turned out to be bad. Um, characters that you weren't sure if they were going to be good actually turned out to be really good, like Prince Christian's father, who when you hear about him, he kind of sounds like a jerk. And then when you first meet him, you're like, oh, I don't know, maybe he's not quite smart or right in the head and then he actually turns out to be a really good guy so it, it was good plot wise um i have a really hard time telling the people apart in this book there's no women practically unless you count christian's mother who's not in it very much at all um and all the guys kind of look the same to me you have to look at their hair really carefully to tell them apart, and you have to look at their clothing, too. And the old guys are easy to tell because they're given some distinguishing characteristic, like they got a big mustache, or they wear a shirt with a giant cravat, or they have a big nose, or, you know, there's something about it. But all the young guys look exactly the same, and there's a whole bunch of scenes uh, on horseback with the guys riding through the woods, and... A guy gets stabbed, and I was like, wait, which guy is this? And then the bad guys show up, and they look exactly like the good guys. <laughs> so I was really confused. And plus, the, the names of the guys, the good guys and the bad guys, are a little weird. There's one guy whose name is Hazel. And this is just me, but whenever I hear someone called Hazel, I immediately think of Watership Down, <laughs> which is not the right connotation that you want to have. And I'm equating this guy with a bunch of rabbits, which is just, it's wrong. Um, so there's just some weird art going on here and maybe I just need to get used to it or I would have an easier time telling them apart if I read more of this. The other thing that really confused the hell out of me is in some of the action sequences, there are sword fights, which are drawn very eloquently, eloquently, elegantly. The characters look extremely graceful when they're doing this. They're kind of posed in these action poses, but at the same time, they're, they're looking like, you know, there's a lot of movement going on. The swords are definitely moving around, but for the life of me, I cannot figure out what the fuck is going on when these guys are fighting with swords. I can't tell who's doing what. I can't tell where the swords are moving. I don't know who's winning. I don't know who's losing. I can't tell when somebody gets hurt. The sound effects are all in Japanese, so I don't quite know what's going on here. And then, you know, something will happen, like they're sword fighting, and then somebody from somewhere shoots an arrow. It's like, well, who was that? And was he a good guy or a bad guy? I can't tell. And, oh, it's so confusing. So, I don't know. Maybe that's just my failing. But I, I think that the action sequences in something like this, where it's actually crucial to the plot, and 
It's in black and white, so you can't tell anybody apart by the colors of their clothing, and they all sort of have the same build. You need to be a little clearer in the action to say who's winning and who's losing. I, I feel that that's important. So I, I would definitely recommend this sort of thing if you're into manga and historical stuff. Uh, I might buy the next couple of volumes. I'm not really sure. The story didn't grab me to the point where I absolutely had to know what was going to happen next. Um, there is sex in here, and it's very nice sex. Um, given that it's yaoi, it's not really explicit sex, so we're not seeing you know, hard-ons or cocks or penetration or anything. But it, it's nice that they get naked and we get to see them mostly naked and they do have very lovely bodies for being naked. I just spent a second flipping through this book to see if I could find out how old Prince Christian is supposed to be because sometimes he's drawn like he's, I don't know, 15 or 16, which is probably okay. And sometimes he's drawn like he's 11 or 12, which isn't so okay. So I'm not sure how old exactly he's supposed to be. I guess I'm supposed to imagine for the purposes of this book that he is of the age of consent. And Zeke is clearly a bit older than him, as you expect, because it's Yowie, and that's the way it works. So uh, you just have to kind of mentally make sure that you think he's old enough. Um, There is a part here that just cracked me up. I remember when I looked through it. um, There's a a section where they're coming back toward the castle. Um, They're from the the place where they are the <sighs> the prince has gone to this boarding school to learn how to be a good swordsman and Zeke is his mentor and then they have to go back to Chris's home because his father has been poisoned and that's where the bad guys try and attack them okay so they get close to it and they come upon an encampment and um they find some good guys there and they're all in these wagons so Chris goes in to talk to uh one of the advisors I guess to his father and the best part is that you know they're supposed to be in Ireland and they're both wearing kimonos and they're both sitting on the floor in you know traditional sort of Japanese cross-legged position uh, and they're bowing to each other and the guy says oh I'm so sorry for this thing that happened please allow me the opportunity to atone for this crime which is so Japanese and I just love the fact that you know in a historical romance set in Ireland you have guys wearing kimonos so that's kind of cool and I, I really appreciate that sort of uh, fantasy aspect of this. So uh, at the end of the book, uh, you know, they go through some stuff and then Zeke gets to stay. And then I'm guessing that the next two books are about their adventures together. Now, I always wanted to say something else. There's a little bonus story that comes at the back of this book, which is called Deadly Sin. And it's about uh, a priest who falls in love. And I really like this story. It takes place modern day and... It is about how this guy who's a priest uh, really feels isolated and is not really sure how to relate to people anymore because he has to, I guess he's a Catholic priest. He has to be, you know, celibate and hold himself up to certain ideals and be uh, a role model for everybody. And he has a, a friend visit him from Japan and... This guy just points out to him, you know, you need to have a life. You need to think about yourself and you need to relax and you need to actually live and not just be a priest. You have to be yourself. And they end up falling in love and they end up having sex, which is kind of nice. And um, at the end, they don't really sort of end up together, but maybe they do. Um, 
he just thinks, I am so glad that this happened because, uh, he says, I will never forget. I will no longer see the darkness. And it's really very nice. So I was glad that was in there. And I got to thinking, you know, that's a pretty transgressive story. And I'm not sure that that would be published in a regular English language type of comic book, you know. Um, Gay sex is one thing. Priests having sex is another thing. In fact, I have to say, um, one of the books that I had read and reviewed for Tarkari Press, which is this online ebook publisher, uh, had a whole book about taboos and transgressions. And, you know, fuck me if most of them weren't about religion and sex and about priests having sex. And so apparently everybody sees this as a huge transgressive thing that if you're a priest, you don't have sex. And if you do have sex, it's the worst thing in the world or. A big thing, anyway. So I just thought that was kind of interesting that they tacked that on at the end. And it is a really good story. And in some ways, I actually enjoyed it a little bit more than some of the fantasy and the fantasticalness of The Black Knight. So I'm wondering if the other books also come with these bonus stories. But I I really enjoyed that. So, you know, maybe it's worth picking up just for that story alone. Next, we have another indie title. This is called Never Ending Summer. And this was a book that I think I got as a review copy uh, a while ago. (laughs) And it's published by Alternative Comics. In fact, if I check, I can probably tell you when it came out. And that will be extremely embarrassing. Oh my god, winter of 2004. That's really awful. And I actually read it when I got it. And then somehow I just never got around to reviewing it. And I thought, oh my god, I never talked about this book. So I read it again, and I'm going to talk about it now. Um, I also was thinking that it might be good if I could try really hard to feature at least one woman uh, artist on this show every week, so or every time I do it, every week. <laughs> so Allison Cole is the uh, featured female artist for the week. And um, this is a slim little trade, and I'm pretty sure that this is not collected stuff. It's, it's a story that she drew from start to finish for it. So um, I'll, I'll, I have some good things and some things that I didn't like about it. Um, I I think her art style is really interesting and really different from anything that I'd seen before. It took me a little while to get used to it, but it made me focus a little bit more on the characters who are in here. So uh, the book is not black and white. It's kind of brown and white. And she has a very minimalist drawing style. Um, The the buildings and everything, everything looks normal. I mean, it looks like it's supposed to look not photorealistic, but, you know, like you'd find in a comic. But all of the characters look like they're wearing... um, sort of uh, big jumpers, like baby jumpers that go up over their heads, and they don't have anything but eyes, really. You don't see their mouths, um, and they have eyebrows, and all the men and the women look exactly the same. The girls don't really have breasts, and the guys don't look bigger or differently shaped than the girls do. Um, The guys sometimes have a little bit of uh, facial hair, if they have facial hair, but that's pretty much it. So it's it's a very interesting concept to kind of draw everyone exactly the same. And I like the fact that it makes you stop for a minute when you're watching people talk to each other, when you're trying to figure out who's talking and what the relationship is. It makes you kind of put aside some of those stereotypes or expectations about who's going to do what. So I just thought that that was really interesting. There is a guide in the front to show you who all the different people are in the book so you could look really quickly. Um, Everybody has something a little bit different about them, so you can't actually tell them apart. None none of the people are identical to each other. They all have something that makes them a little different. So um, that that was just, I I thought that was really clever. I like that. 
it's I'm guessing that this is an autobiographical story because the main character is named Allison, and some of the people in here um, have the same names as the people that she thanks at the end of the book. So maybe this really happened, or maybe something like it happened, or I don't know, maybe she just made up a story and put herself in it. And like a lot of indie comics, it's the story of uh, a time in her life, a summer, that's why it's called Never Ending Summer, when stuff happened to her and her friends. So she has a boyfriend, she breaks up with her boyfriend, she starts seeing another guy, she breaks up with him, and then um, spends a lot of time kind of wondering about what she's going to do and why things suck so much sometimes and where her happiness is going to come from. And her friends do the same. And she's got um, some good girlfriends that she hangs out with and um, some boyfriends too. She works in a comic book store, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, And she really likes music also. So those two themes, the comic books and the music run through this and the music turns out to be the really crucial part at the very end. And it was nice to see it because they introduce they. She introduces the co- the concept of the music as being important. Right in the very beginning of this, um, her boyfriend is packing up to go on a vacation, and at some point he calls and says, oh, could you make me a mixtape? And she does, and it's a kick-ass mixtape, because she's really good at that, and it leads to her discovering that what she'd really like to do um, is DJ, and she ends up doing that at the end of the book, and she does this DJing on her own, you know, she's not depending on anybody. It's just a thing that she learns how to do very quickly, and she turns out to be really good at it, and that makes her happy, and it's good to see her happy at the end of the book. So I was really pleased to see her character go through that. Um, the things that, that kind of bugged me a little bit about this is that, you know, I've seen this story before, essentially, where it's someone trying to figure out what's important and what's not important. It doesn't make this story any less valid, but it does make it something a little overly familiar to me. And the fact that her friends have the same sorts of things going on is, again, very familiar to me. Um, I, I like the fact that it's like real life and nothing really gets wrapped up neatly at the end and people act like real people do. They act like assholes and they do stupid things and they drink too much and get fucked up and don't remember what's going on. The thing that I knew was going to be true at the beginning and by gum it turned out to be true was that most of the guys in this book, the guys who are the romantic interests, not the guys who are the friends, because the guys who are the friends, the platonic friends, are all fine, but the guys who are the romantic interests are all assholes. Um, This guy that she's dating, he can't really bring himself to break up with her even though he's secretly been talking to his old high school girlfriend every single week while they've been dating. Um... And after she finally does break up with him, he wants to keep calling her and says, oh, we can still be best friends, can't we? Like, she's got to be on the hook for him. Um, There's another girl who is going through a breakup with her boyfriend, which is really kind of sad to watch because she's very, very, very in love with him. And she doesn't understand why he's being such a dick. And at one point when they're talking, she says, he won't talk to me and I don't know why. And then she says, I don't know, I feel like I'm an aunt, and he's a 12-year-old boy on a sunny day with a magnifying glass. And, you know, I kind of understand that feeling, and I I know that it's true, and it really makes you go through this book going, don't date boys, just stop. They're assholes, all of them. They're not worth it. <laughs> and that's kind of the message you get out of here, is that they're more trouble than they're worth, you know? Okay to have them as friends, but don't date them. 
the guy that the main character, Allison, starts seeing seems like a great guy, and they have all the same interests, and he's really nice to her, and then she sleeps with him, and right after that, he's like, oh, that's it, no more relationship, whatever, I'm obsessed with my old girlfriend, sorry. And I think pretty much that's been the case for lots and lots and lots of women, if not just about every woman. So those things were things that were going to happen, I could see from the beginning, and they did, so there you go. Um, I'm actually getting to the point where I'd kind of like to see a book where somebody has a relationship with a guy that isn't totally sucky and is more realistic, like it has the good points and the bad points, but it's not rose-colored glasses, but yet it's not every guy's an asshole kind of thing, too. Because, you know, I don't think every guy is an asshole. I know you think I do, but I don't. (laughs) I really don't. So... I think this is a really interesting book. It's, I think, her first graphic novel, and it's a it's a really good um, piece of work for a first one, and I'd kind of like to see what else she's got up her sleeve. She has a website, which I'll put up a link to, called Allison Cole Illustration, and um, I really do like her art style, so I'm looking forward to seeing more that's, that's in this style that maybe has a little more meat on the bone. If I could say my, my criticism in one phrase, I think that that would probably be it. get in some of the commercials. First, the music, as always, by the diva, Ginger Mayerson, who is going to Comic-Con this weekend, so hopefully I'll get a little report from her about what that was all about. Um, You should all be shopping if you live in Northern California at Comic Relief in Berkeley, which is the only comic book store that matters, because they really are wonderful and have everything that you could ever want, and they're independent, and just a wonderful, beautiful place to shop for comic books. And lastly, this podcast is, of course, a member of the Comics Podcasts Network. So, back to the reviews. Last on our list for now is another indie comic <clears throat> called The Mighty Skullboy Army, which is published by Dark Horse. And it's a collection of, um, I think, many comics. Um, so there are several shorter stories and then one really long one in the middle and then a couple more short pieces to round it up. It's by a guy named um, Jacob Chabot. Or maybe it's um, Chabot, but I say Chabot because in Berkeley there's a place called Chabot. Um, This is a a cute little book which didn't um, make me fall in love with it. So the premise of this is that there's a little kid uh, whose name is Skullboy, and he has to go to school. I guess he's supposed to be in third or fourth grade, but at the same time he has the mighty Skullboy army and he runs an evil empire. So he's doing both of these things at the same time. That's the whole setup. He has two helpers that kind of hang around the school with him, um, Unit 1 and Unit 2. Um, unit 1 is a robot, and Unit 2 is a monkey. And they get into a lot of trouble and usually aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And it's drawn in a, a very, uh, it's black and white, it's drawn in a very cartoony style. And that's 
correct for this. I think that the the art actually is good. And, and Skullboy is a very weird-looking little guy. He's got a little tiny body, and his head is a big round. He almost looks like a Pokemon skull head, I guess, if, if they had skull heads. So he's not particularly frightening-looking, and even though he gets pissed off and stuff, he never really does that much that's bad. So it's not clear what his evil corporation is trying to do. And I am thinking that these stories were arranged in chronological order because the first couple aren't that good and they get a lot better as they go along. And by the end, it's getting into these very complicated and almost existential discussions that the robot and the monkey are having. Well, the monkey doesn't talk, but the robot is talking and the monkey clearly understands. And I almost feel like Skullboy is a secondary character in here because the robot and the monkey are more interesting in some ways than Skullboy is. So the the middle story, the longest one, is this sort of involved, almost um, sitcom-esque thing where Skullboy wants the robot and the monkey to um, help him stop getting beaten up by bullies, and he tries to get them on the pagers that he gave to them, but they don't have the pagers because they pawned them for money, so they have to figure out how to get the money to get the pagers back. So they start a lemonade stand, but that doesn't really work very well, and then Skullboy shows them how they should really be running a lemonade stand, and in the end, um, they end up with some money, but then they spend it on hats instead of getting their pagers back, and it just it kind of keeps going on like that. So um, I, I thought this was interesting, but it, it felt a little limiting to me. I like the art, and I think it's an interesting concept. I think I would have liked to have seen um, stories that kind of went somewhere more rather than the whole pager lemonade hat thing which I could kind of see coming and I really do like the way that the 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 robot has as as you know robots do this is the cliche of the robot in everything that you've ever seen from you know cartoons to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to Data you know the robot is the one that's having all these deep philosophical insights and thinking that uh, you know they're they're so sad because they don't have uh, human feelings, or they're not human. Anyway, so uh, I, I think it's kind of cute. I would like to see what else happens to it, but it, you know, it didn't thrill me. It wasn't my favorite thing. I'm not a huge fan of it, but it was good anyway. So just a couple more things before I round this out. The superhero stamps for this year are coming out Comic-Con weekend, and they're Marvel ones, and they're really cool. There's a couple of previews up online that you can see, and there's some lovely Kirby art in there, which I like very, very much, and I believe some um, John Romita art as well. So those are neat. There's, uh, let's see, Spider-Man, Hulk, Submariner, Thing, Captain America, Silver Surfer, um, Spider-Woman, Iron Man, Elektra, and Wolverine, and then there are covers, classic covers that illustrate each of those. And the colors look really beautiful and very, very nice. So I'm glad that those are coming out. That's a cool thing. The Simpsons movie is opening this weekend, and I'm probably going to go see that because the commercials look really, really, really funny. And in fact, I think I might play a little clip of that right at the end here because it just cracks me the heck up. So there's a lot of stuff to see. There seem to be a ton of animated movies this summer, and I missed some of them. I didn't see Transformers, although Logan did. I still haven't seen Ratatouille, and it looks like there's some other stuff coming out later this summer as well. I will say next show I will be reviewing the last of the Project X books that I got, which is the um, Nissan Z car which made me sad to read because it was the last one that I had, and it was really good as the other ones were. It had a slightly different focus, so it wasn't quite as driven as the other ones, but I still loved it, and I really, really hope that they come out with more because it was just a wonderful, wonderful book. 
So go and enjoy not being at Comic-Con, and next time I'll be back with lots more stuff to talk about. How did the pig tracks get on the ceiling? Spider pig, spider pig, does whatever a spider pig does. The Simpsons Movie. Look out, he is a spider pig. Help, the human's about to escape. Get your paws off me, you dirty ape! He can talk. He can talk, 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 he can talk! I can sing! Ooh, help me, Dr. Zayus! Dr. Zayus, Dr. Zayus! Dr. Zayus, Dr. Zayus! Dr. Zayus, Dr. Zayus! Oh, Dr. Zayus! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. What's wrong with me? I think you're crazy. On a second opinion. You're also lazy. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Oh, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Can I play the piano anymore? Of course you can. Well, I couldn't before. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas, oh, Dr. Zayas, 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 oh, Dr. Zayas. This play has everything. Oh, I love legitimate theater. Every ape I see, from chimpanzee to chimpanzee. No, you'll never make a monkey out of me. Oh my God, I was wrong. It was Earth all along. You finally made a monkey. Yes, we finally made a monkey. Yes, you Thank you.